Welcome to the second part of the Russ and Elizabeth Faria case. This is It's All Relative, and I'm Kaylee, your host. Please remember, everybody, that this is a true crime podcast. We do talk about things that may be disturbing to some people. We talk about things that may set off some of your triggers. So please keep that in mind when you are listening. And don't listen if you think this is going to be a problem for you, or if you have small children in the room and you don't want them to hear these things. Otherwise, here we go with part two, and Miss Kesha will lead us in. I'm taking a high road, I'm high as fucking these assholes. Won't shut up, I'm eleven. I'm losing no sleep. I'm taking a high road, I'm high as fucking I don't know. We're all in Fasten your seatbelt, people, because this case is knuckin' futs. All right, everybody, when last we left our hero, Mr. Russ Faria, he was rotting in prison with no possibility of parole. Unfortunately, I left some key points out of the last episode on purpose so that you would kind of understand what the jury had to deal with. But now I'm going to start to get into what was going on that the jury didn't see and what was wrong with this whole scenario. Let's start with the first suspicious thing that the police see. Russ calls 911 and the dispatchers send out EMS and the officers. The first officer on the scene and the EM- EMTs see immediately that Betsy is dead. Betsy has been dead for a while in their opinion. She is stiff and the blood is congealing. Case in point, Officer Hollingsworth. He's the first responder on the scene of Betsy's death after Russ called 911. In the trial, he is interviewed by the prosecutor, Leah Askey, and I quote, Question, was there any point in time when you saw Bessie Faria lying on the ground that you thought it was suicide? Answer, no ma'am. Question, not even a split second? Answer, no ma'am. Question, how long would you say you were in the house before you exited? Answer, less than a minute. End quote. They also interview Michael Quattrochi. He works for Lincoln County Ambulance District, and he is also lead medic who is a, also a first responder on the scene of Betsy's death. This again is coming from the court transcripts from the trial. This time he is being questioned from the prosecuting side by Mr. Hicks. And I quote, question. Now I know you're looking at it here, referring to the picture. If we can, first, how close did you get to her? Answer, I got right about to where her head is and I didn't go any further. I didn't want to, you know, to contaminate it. It just looked like this was going to be a bad deal. This was going to be a crime scene. We try not to contaminate and get out as quickly as we can. Question. You just said you thought it was going to be a crime scene. You said that you were responding to a suicide. Answer. Yes. Question. When you observed this, immediately your thinking was not a suicide. Crime scene? Answer. Exactly. Question. Why is that? Answer. Because she had a knife stuck into her neck. Question. Okay, have you ever responded to suicides before? Answer. Yes. Question. 
Okay, have you ever seen anybody commit suicide by putting a knife all the way into their neck? Answer, no sir. Question, okay, let me ask you this. How readily apparent was it to you when you walked up to this body? How easy was it to see the knife there? Answer, I had my, I had a light, so I was just looking her over a little, you know, and once I, you know, her hair was there, so it was kind of difficult, but then I saw it. Question, did you have to move her body in any way? Answer, no, I did not touch. I did, didn't move her at all. And they're not wrong in that from a forensic standpoint, it was pretty obvious that this very possibly was a suspicious death, not a suicide, probably homicide. And sweeping Russell out of the room, treating it like a crime scene from the get-go was the right call, in my opinion. However, what they needed to do at that point was to continue to investigate and determine why Russ might have thought that it was suicide, if it was legitimate that he thought it was suicide, as opposed to was he really trying to just deflect blame from himself. And this is when it becomes about science. You cannot just have a feeling in your gut and say, oh yeah, this is how it happened, and then try to do everything you can to make the evidence fit that. You have to look for the evidence and figure out what happened from that. Number one, Russ and and Betsy's family both said that she had had a couple instances in the past where she had tried to commit suicide or had talked about committing suicide. There was even a point when an actual officer had to take her in. He stopped her because she was driving erratically and she had commented that she was thinking about ending her life. This is stuff that's verifiable that they never really dug into, but they did have some suggestive circumstantial evidence pointing towards, well, maybe there is actually something to his claim that this might have been suicide. In addition, people that don't spend time picking this stuff apart, listening to the stories, and figuring these things out, don't necessarily see things the same way an officer would when they come into a scene. Officers, if they're good at their job, crime scene investigators, if they're good at their job, will look at a scene a certain way. Most people do not do this. So Russ coming into the house, Betsy is lying on her stomach. Now the bulk of these stab wounds are on the front of her body, but she's lying on her stomach. So those are covered up. He can see all the blood, but what he does see is, you know, her arms are kind of awkwardly positioned to the side of her body. And he can see that at least one of her wrists is cut, which is something that people do when they're going to commit suicide. And he sees a knife in her neck. So what he doesn't see is these multiple stab wounds, which ends up being 55. And the first thing that comes into his mind is suicide. And I think that's completely logical considering where he has come from. People do commit suicide in crazy ass ways. I have a couple of examples for you. For those true crime fanatics out there, watched Homicide Hunter, Joe Kenda, also brilliant snark comes from this man. Um, but season eight of Homicide Hunter deals with a woman who, could, who doused herself with gasoline and set herself on fire to commit suicide. 
more recently, there is Chloe Segal, who also set herself on fire to commit suicide out in Oregon to address Betsy possibly having stabbed herself in the neck to commit suicide. To compare, there's Valerie Nash out in Palms in the Los Angeles area. She was found in her townhome with a chainsaw wound to the neck, and it, it was determined that she had committed suicide by chainsaw. You've got Ellen Greenberg, who in 2011 died by 20 stab wounds. The medical examiner concluded that she committed suicide. I know her family is not convinced of that, and I'm not saying they aren't right, but in that case, the legal system has concluded that she died of 20 stab wounds by suicide. And a quick side note, I know these days a lot of people don't like it when you say commit suicide because the word commit makes it sound like the person has done something wrong. And while I do agree with the sentiment that they are trying to portray here, I also don't like the concept of saying complete suicide as if you had completed an assignment just makes it sound like something you're just ticking off on a box and I think that that's it's way more serious than that word conveys and so until I come up with something that fits better than either one of those terms I will continue to use commit suicide but please understand I am not necessarily saying that the person who has committed suicide has done something wrong. Additionally, there is a lot of continued concern about Ress's behavior. One of the things that they make a big deal about is if you come in the house and you find your loved one dead on the floor, you don't carefully place your coat and gloves on a chair. You toss them aside and run in and clasp the person so that the crime scene investigators come in would find a coat and gloves and hat or whatever else you are wearing outside sort of in disarray somewhere and you would very possibly be covered in blood because you have embraced your loved one. Let's start with the outerwear that Russ was wearing when he came in the house and I will go to the testimony from the original court documents. This is when they are questioning Amy Pratt. She is employed by the St. Charles County Sheriff's Department and she's a crime scene investigator. She's there specifically maybe to do other things, but her it's her job on this particular case to take the photographs. And I quote, question, Amy, is it fair to say you pretty well take pictures of anything you think is significant? Answer, yes. Question, and things that you don't think that are significant? Answer, yes, because you never know what may become significant. That right there I think is actually kind of important. Question, Amy, I'm going to show you, Mrs. Askey, any objection? Mr. Swanson, no. Question by Ms. Askey. I'm going to show you what's been marked as State's Exhibit 15. Is this a photograph you would have taken? Answer, yes. And do you immediately start taking pictures when you enter the residence? Answer, yes. Question, okay. And was there anything of significance that you noted when you walked into the residence and were taking these photographs? Answer, when this particular picture, you immediately noticed that there were some packages and some Kohl's bags that type of thing, in front, the chair. There's a Dollar General bag on the chair with some toilet paper in it, and there's a coat just laying on the back of the chair. Question, nicely laid there, is, is that right? Answer, yes, ma'am. Question, do you move anything at this point? Answer, no, nothing has moved at this point. Those are my overall photos. 
Question. Before anything is touched or moved, you take a picture of it? Answer. Yes. Question. What is the purpose of that? Answer. So that I can show the overall scene before anything is touched. Question. Now, states exhibit 16. What's that? Answer. These are a pair of leather gloves that are located on the love seat, the back of the love seat. Question. How are they positioned? Answer. They are positioned just as they are, perfectly laid there. Question. So it's not like they are thrown off? Answer. No. Question. Disheveled in any way? Answer. No. They are laid nicely? Answer. Yes, ma'am. Question. And you specifically took a close-up of those gloves? Answer. Yes, because of the way they are perfectly laid. Question. Why did you do that? Answer. Because it was unusual for me. End quote. I mean, on the one hand, she did specifically take those pictures because she thought they were odd. Again, looking at like Chris Watts. Oh, it's odd. This has been so perfectly cleaned. Granted, you're right. It does seem suspicious at first until you realize that these people are that fucking clean all the time. So it really ended up being a non-factor because he wasn't necessarily, I mean, he may have been, but I mean, ultimately in that case, it really wasn't much of a clue because they were always that clean. Um, in this case, I think it's subjective. You know, how you you take off your glove, you put them down. I mean, some, you're not going to throw them across the room. You're not going to throw them on the floor. I don't know. That's, I mean, some people do. I know there's a lot of, you know, arguments in marriages about stuff like this. You just dropped your shit on the floor. But it, for me, you know, I'm going to take my stuff off and I'm going to put them somewhere halfway decent that I'm going to know where they are again and not get lost and kicked around. So if I put them on a chair, I'm going to set them on a chair. Um, depending upon the situation when I'm coming in the house, I might throw them on the chair, but it wouldn't be unusual for me to lay them on the chair as well. I mean, remember, they're trying to point out that if Russ had come in the house and he had just found Betsy this way, he would have flung off his outerwear, it would have landed haphazardly somewhere in the house, and he would have raced to Betsy. So what they're trying to say here is that he actually was there, he killed her, he took off of his coat and his gloves and laid them gently on the chair because he was not worried about the fact that he had just found her, he already knew she was there. Again, it's subjective. They're neatly laid there. Okay. I mean, some of the stuff you think is weird to begin with is completely valid. In the moment, it looks weird. Check it out. That's the thing they never actually did. They didn't check it out. They just left it as it's weird in order to throw suspicion on Ross. But I can see why they might have been suspicious of him. One of the big things is that he did say he laid on the floor maybe 10, 12 inches from her face. It sounds like he was at her head propped up on, on his stomach, propped up on his elbows, looking at her. It almost sounds like a, a very childish thing to do, but I, I can only imagine, you know, I, it's very difficult to get sort of an idea of who these people are. So almost seems like something that would be normal for him to do. There are a couple other things that like the sisters said, meaning one of Betsy's sisters, that seemed like he did some childish things. So it's entirely possible that he in some ways was a bit like Chris Watts in that he's a bit childish when it comes to love. But regardless, the big deal the prosecution makes is that he has no blood on him if he did lay that close to her. And I completely understand why they're not showing the crime scene photos you know, to the world. But it makes it kind of difficult to make an assessment when I'm doing this podcast. 
whether it's possible or not, but it does kind of look like most of the blood is at her and behind her, but not to the front of her. So I don't know if she, she got dragged or she tried to drag herself, but it does look like there's no blood. It's entirely possible that he didn't get blood on him because there wasn't any over there. And that's actually why he chose that spot. I also need to point out that the uh, paramedics did not get blood on them either when they came in. Not that they, you know, they didn't necessarily lay down next to her. They didn't have to do any life-saving measures, so they wouldn't have gotten any. But they also, you know, if they didn't get any on them, they would have at least had some maybe possibly on their shoes. They didn't get it on their shoes. So that does seem actually possible. The next item we have to overcome is his alibi. And I think Joel Schwartz himself said it best on an interview for William Ramsey Investigates. To see him that, that afternoon, he explained to me what he had done and where he had been throughout the course of the evening. Russ had been with his friends. His cell site confirmed that. He had four, four solid alibi witnesses. They took him into custody. He volunteered everything he possibly could. So what Russ told them is his whereabouts. He told them that he left his house. He told him how and when he traveled to the alibi witness's home. Um, he told them all the names and the individuals and how to contact the people who he was with. He told them where he was when he left there and the stops that he made. What the police were able to do during the course of this investigation, as incomprehensible as this may seem, was to confirm every single thing that Russ had told them. In other words, he told them the first thing he did after leaving home was stop at a gas station to get a little bit of gas. They went to the gas station and they got a video of him hopping out of his car, pumping in $10 of gas and continuing on his way. He told them that he went to a place to buy cigarettes. That's where he finds, he buys cartons and he buys them cheaper than anywhere else. They went to that place. They got him on video. They went by a place that his wife had told him to stop to pick up dog food and toilet paper. They got a receipt from that place, and the owner identified the picture of Russ as having someone who had been there the evening prior. Uh, he stopped at a, a quick trip, got some lemonade right before he was at his friend's house. Interestingly enough, he was captured on video at all these places wearing the exact same clothing that he was arrested in approximately four hours later. More interestingly is they were able to do an emergency subpoena for his cell phone and cell site information, which also confirmed his travel to and from his friend's home. Additionally, while he was still in custody, they went and they spoke to the four friends that he was with as to his whereabouts and his actions during the course of the time that he claimed that he was with them. All four of them independently and separately confirmed exactly what had occurred and that Russ had been there all evening. Finally, during the course of their search, they found an Arby's receipt crumpled up in the back seat of his car, along with a couple Arby's roast beef empty wrapping paper. And it told the exact same time that he it told the time that he had left his friend's house and stopped at Arby's to get a couple of sandwiches prior to heading for home. So in essence, even though Russ may have been a little bit odd in making so many stops before his game night, the police were able to verify every single bit of his alibi, including the stop he made at Arby's, which was by his friend's house, a half an hour away from his own home, and therefore proving that he could not have been home in time to commit the murder. And so here's the thing, that doesn't stop the cops 
from still trying to make sure that Ross goes down for this crime. And this also comes from the book Bone Deep. Quote, after accusing him, that would be Russ, of murdering his wife, Detective Ray Floyd didn't give Russ Faria time to catch his breath before the cop dropped the big lie, or in the best light, the biggest mistake, on him. Delivering what would become a foundation of the case against Russ, Floyd said, She hadn't been dead hardly at all when the police got there, less than an hour. Russ was shocked again. He was no forensic expert, but in his brief moments with Betsy's body told him she had to have been dead longer than that. End quote. And never, ever, ever forget, these guys can lie to you. It is totally legal that the police in an investigation can lie to you. Who they cannot lie to is the court. So when the case is taken to trial, the police have to present the evidence, the actual evidence, as it stands. They cannot legally lie to the prosecution team, the defense team, the judge, the jury, and so forth. That's called perjury. So what happens is, and it's kind of murky here, who was responsible for what? But it is what happens is that somewhere between the police and the prosecution team, they decide that because Russ did this, Betsy had to have been murdered after he got home. So the police are actually sent out to do this run from the friend's house, from the Arby's actually, to his home in Troy to do this drive and see how soon he could have gotten there. And they take this drive, they're speeding like crazy. They're actually, it is it's reported that they actually drove on the shoulder to get there as fast as possible. And then he's left, you know, just a few minutes maybe to have committed the murder. And the prosecution takes this, Leah Askey, the prosecutor, takes this to the trial and says, well, if that's what happened, then why is she stiff? Okay, my response, or why she's stiff is something called cadaveric spasm. Russ killed her and then instead of the normal rate of rigor mortis setting in, cadaveric spasm happened. To put it as simply as I can, a cadaveric spasm is when the body goes through a trauma and it happens so suddenly that the body sends out a huge influx of ADP, which is basically the chemical that makes up and this is all very simplified but this chemical that makes your muscles get stiff and because that happened the body will be stiff immediately upon death rather than waiting for rigor mortis to set in and that usually happens rigor mortis usually takes somewhere between 6 to 12 hours but the problem with that is there's a huge debate whether it does actually happen. I think it is entirely possible that it does happen, but if it does, it is rare. If it did happen in this rare instance, they still have the problem of the condition of the blood. They did not have anyone analyze the blood forensically, and it takes a while for blood to become like that. It doesn't just, if it's tacky and coagulated, it's been there a while, especially when it's like a pool. So even if she went into a cadaveric spasm, her blood would still be fresh. So they did not explain that. We also have the problem that Russ didn't have any blood on him. 
Remember at the beginning, that was a bit of a problem because supposedly he laid down on the floor by her, but he didn't have any blood on him. But now they're saying he had these few minutes when he got home to commit the murder. How did he do all that and get cleaned up without getting any blood on him? So now none of this seems to bother Leah Askey. Instead of presenting further proof of how any of this could be possible, she waits until her closing statement. Now, I find it appalling that you can come up with a theory of the crime that wasn't even presented during the trial, that you can wait till the closing statement to present this stuff. But apparently it does happen. And in this case, Leah Askey presented at the end of the trial that the reason Russ didn't have any blood on his clothes is that he committed the crime in the nude. In fact, he did that because even though he only had like six minutes to complete this entire process, he took off his clothes and decided one last time that he would humiliate her by raping her, which by the way explains something else that was ridiculous earlier that I have not mentioned yet, but that she had a few sperm. She had, I believe it was eight sperm in her vaginal cavity, which is, you know, if you know anything about ejaculate, there are like thousands and thousands and thousands of them in there. And to have only eight means that it's been a while since she had sex. So for him to have raped her right before he committed this crime, before he would have left a lot more than eight sperm. But she says he killed her after raping her and then went to the shower and washed it off and then put his regular clothes back on. An additional problem to this scenario, which she doesn't address, is that the crime scene techs did take apart the drains to see if there was any sign of cleanup in the drains and there weren't any. She also says, I'm gonna let Joel Schwartz speak for himself on the appalling nature of this clothing argument. And this again comes from the interview he did with William Ramsey. The prosecutor got up and spun a tale that I, I still to this day can't believe. In her tale, she accused the four alibi witnesses of being complicit with Russ Faria in a deep-seated long-standing plot to kill Betsy Faria. It was inexplicable, it was unethical. Yes. That's right, she accused the four alibi witnesses, his friends from gang night, of being completely complicit in the crime without presenting any evidence whatsoever or even bringing up a hint of this to begin with in the trial. And I'll tell you, afterwards, those four witnesses were not thrilled. Also from the unsolved murder of Bessie Faria, we have Brandon Sweeney's reaction to being called a murderer, and I quote, that really sickened me to my stomach because I tried to help them the whole time and be honest and truthful and just helping them find what happened that night, end quote. I could go on with this stuff and I will probably bring up more in the next episode, but ultimately it comes down to they had nothing. They didn't even present a motive. Not that you have to present a motive, but it would have helped with all of this very slim circumstantial evidence. Oh, and those photos that supposedly showed this lit up like a Christmas tree path of blood from the living room to the kitchen. 
and those photos that didn't turn out, guess what? They found them later. They had been deliberately excluded. Honestly, every step of the way, Russ was railroaded in one way or another. But ultimately, when it got to the end of this, they didn't meet the burden of proof. Now, when they sent the jury out, and the jury came back with a conviction, and I believe it only took them like four hours, I haven't been able to find out if this is if this is acceptable in Missouri, but in many states, if the jury comes back with a conviction on a case which the judge knows damn well that the prosecution did not meet the burden of proof, that the judge can overturn the jury's verdict and basically throw it out and set Russell free, which is what should have happened. However, well, honestly, it should never have gotten to that point, but I mean, at the very last vestige, that's what should have happened, and it didn't. So next time, we're going to talk about all of the scary and actually insidious shit that happened during this case, which started out on the surface looking like husband kills wife and turned out to be insanity personified. And we'll bring this episode to a close with the one and only Patsy Cline. I'm crazy for trying and crazy for crying and I'm crazy for loving